The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. We leave today. Grab one of the study guides uh, for the series. Um, they're back on the middle table. Um, if we need to print more, we'll do that next week. But all of the small groups uh, that meet here at Westway Christian Church use those study guides as our material. Um, it's a great way for us to just be on the same page about what we're talking about, and I would really encourage you um, to take time to, uh, to do that. We're beginning the second part of our series on the book uh, or on the church at Ephesus um, this morning. Last fall, uh, we called that series The Wife of Christ because that's how Paul referred to the church. He called it The Wife of Christ. We read in Acts 18 to 20 how the church got its start. Um, Acts 18 verses 19 to 28 describe for us how Paul visited Ephesus on what we call his second missionary journey. And when he left, he left a couple there behind. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila to teach and proclaim the gospel. In the very next chapter in Acts 19 uh, verse, through 20 uh, verse 1, we read that Paul returned to Ephesus where he stayed for two years, teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And there were lots of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, who were converted to Christianity through Paul's time there in Ephesus. Um, a lot of these people burned their, their witchcraft books and, and their sorcery books, and this put pressure on the silversmiths in Ephesus. It actually affected the business and the economy of, of Ephesus because they were known for selling idols um, to the goddess Artemis. And a huge riot ensued, and Paul escaped with his life. If you go to a little later in Acts chapter 20, we read that Paul uh, kind of returned to Ephesus, and he spoke to the elders, and he gave them a warning that at some future date, there were going to be, there were going to be ravenous wolves, there were going to be false teachers that were going to work their way into the church, that were going to work their way into leadership, and what they needed to be doing was, was be ready for that. They needed to be on the lookout for those false teachers coming in. And then about seven years after the founding of the church, in 60 AD, Paul wrote a letter to that church. We call that letter, we call that book, the book of Ephesians. And if you missed that series, I'd encourage you to go back. You can find it online. You can find it on podcast and listen to, um, to what we talked about from the book of Ephesians. And what he did was he was reminding this church in Ephesus not just of who they were in Christ, but he was telling them how their identity as a Christian, how that identity um, ought to demonstrate who God is, ought to demonstrate how God loves to every person that they came into contact with. Well, what happened next? When we started off this series back in August, I said that we probably know more about the church at Ephesus than any other church because there's a lot of texts that talk about it. Well, author Warren Wearsby, um, he used the word circus to describe the church at Ephesus. Just as Paul had predicted in Acts chapter 20 when he spoke to the elders, false teachers had worked their way into the church. And some of those false teachers had become leaders within the church. They loved to spend their time in endless arguments, confusing people over meanings and definitions of words. 
They added to the law, telling people what they could eat, what they couldn't eat, telling people that they shouldn't get married. And a lot of these false teachers saw ministry as a means to making money. Rather than worshiping God with with hands open in praise, they clung to arguments. They clung to anger. They clung to dissension within the church. And the women who attended the weekly gatherings, they flaunted their wealth and they drew attention to themselves whenever they came into the room. Their jewelry and their hairstyles were all about having people focus on them, not on God. And these church leaders, even the honorable ones, were disrespected by the people. There were slaves who flaunted their freedom in Christ simply because their masters were Christians and they took advantage of that. The wealthy among the believers just pursued more money and more money and more money. And as much as Wearsby uses the word circus to describe the church in Ephesus at this point, um, she looked more like an adulteress of the world than a wife of Christ. And all of this information found its way to Paul. And his response was, was to write a few letters to the pastor at Ephesus. His name was Timothy. That's what we're going to read this morning. We're just going to we're going to listen to the book of First Timothy be read over us. One of the things that, that I've noticed in my time as a Christian is every time I read a book of the Bible, regardless of how many times I read it, there are new things that God brings to my attention. Maybe you've noticed that as a Christian. But even more than reading, one of the things that I've found is when I hear God's Word read, I learn and understand more and different things about Scripture than what I had heard before. I was reminded, actually, of this uh, this morning. I went to, uh, I went to one, of the, one of the small groups that meets upstairs, and um, Dee Miller said, there's, um, there's something about hearing God's Word. Like, I can read it, but I need God to inform me so that I understand what it is. And as soon as she said that, I was reminded of Romans 10.17. And Romans 10.17 says this, So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. I'm not sure what it actually is, other than the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure what exactly it is, when I hear God's word, why that impacts my life. I think there's something spiritual taking place. I don't want to use the word magical because that's a bad word in the church. But I think there's I think they're at a deep level God is at work through his word. And what I would encourage you to do today like I'm going to do when you when you hear this text read over you, read to you this morning, I would encourage you to take notes. What do you hear God saying to you? What are some things that that stick out to you that you hadn't considered before? Because there is power in this. We're not just doing this because because I didn't want to write a sermon today. We're not just doing this because this is a great filler for, for a series. We read God's Word weekly in our gathering because we believe it has power. And that's not me talking. That's what it says about itself. There is something 
to that, and I've experienced that power. And my guess is, for the Christians that are in in the room, we have experienced that same power when we hear God's word. So I would encourage you to, to listen to God's word, to hear what it says. I'm going to start off, I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed the whole point. They've turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't even know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. For we know the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and even handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, 
so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his, own, in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a, a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. 
He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. They will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods, but God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks, for we know it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teachings you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourselves to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle, for our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of all people and particularly of all believers. Teach these things and insist that everyone learn them. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into your tasks so that everyone will see your progress. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teachings. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who was put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, 
meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. All slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment it's, is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you, have been declared, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Jesus Christ, 
who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. So over the next few months here at Westway Christian Church, we're going to be spending our time reading through and discussing these letters. Um, the next six weeks look like First uh, Timothy, and then we'll get into Second uh, Timothy. And our agenda in going through this, uh, this, these particular books, these letters, is so that we would know and understand how godly leaders lead in the midst of challenges and hardships that take place within the church. We want to be a faithful bride of Christ. And as a church that wants to be faithful, we, we take our cues, we take our understandings of what faithfulness looks like, not from our culture around us, but we take what faithfulness looks like from this book. Now my hunch is, anytime we read a letter like 1 Timothy, there are things that we hear that immediately, like, we, be, we begin to be uncomfortable, they set us on edge because we're not used to hearing things like the words that we heard um, Paul write to 1 Timothy. And I want you to know, I'm going to do very little to ease that tension for you. Um, except to say this, there are things that that, say, that that says that doesn't mean what you think it says. And I would encourage you, when you hear God's word, just as a general rule, it may not mean what you think it says. So allow that, allow that tension to build. And don't just hear things in there that sound offensive to our 21st century ears and just write it off. We've talked about this before. We've talked about this often. A really good practice to do is when I read scripture and I see something that offends me, what I probably ought to do is press in a little bit so I can understand what it is that's trying to be said. There are going to be a few times over the course of this series where you're going to think that I'm coming off um, a little strong in this text through these words. This is, this is deeply personal for me. When I read First and Second Timothy um, or Titus, the other pastoral letter, um, when I read these letters, um, these are deeply personal because several years ago, we were, we were a part of a church that was indeed a circus. And if the church at Ephesus seems circus-like, 
The church that we were a part of um, was a fiasco when it, on, the, on the circus scale. We saw leaders who manipulated other leaders. We saw leaders who didn't do godly things. Biblical instructions of confrontation were ignored within the church. And after a period of time, we left. And that church continued to struggle and continued to struggle until it finally closed. Cl- closed. And now, that church is a mosque. That's like some Old Testament-type judgment on churches that are not biblical, that are not scriptural. God takes his bride serious. He takes what we do together as a church seriously. God's not playing when it comes to his church. But we're not just going to be talking about the church. What, what we want to do is we want to confront our own sinful tendencies to ignore what God says. We want to understand how our t- sinful tendencies contribute to a dysfunctional church. We want to understand how our sinful tendencies help make a church a circus when it ought not be a circus. We're going to do this a chapter at a time, and I would encourage you to get into a small group. Again, those study guides are in the back. I would encourage you to get into a small group um, and go through this letter with us and see what God has for us during this series. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to try and figure out how we're supposed to function as a church. We don't have to trust ourselves in that. We can turn to your word. I pray that we would, we would take the study of this text, just like we study any biblical text, seriously. That when we are bothered by it, we would consider why we're bothered by it. We would ask ourselves, why does, this, why does this text make me feel this way? What is it in me that you are confronting right now through your word? What do I need to do differently? God, I pray that we would be a church that's not a circus. That we would be a church that loves one another, that loves others, that functions well, that serves you honorably. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.